Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Adam. And welcome back to Fly on the Wall. We are so excited to kick off our first ever summer season. Leading up to the November 2020 elections, join us on the virtual trail as we chat with campaign operatives, frontline journalists, and other big names in politics. But before we get into the interview, make sure you follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And as always, if you have questions, comments, or ideas for our summer season, feel free to email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. To kick off our season, today we're excited to bring to you a conversation with Michelle Giacconi, executive producer at the Washington Post, a former Hoya, and a member of GU Politics Advisory Board. At the Post, she runs the creative video team, where she has spearheaded the Post's success on TikTok and other programming. Previously, Giacconi worked at CNN and with NBC's Meet the Press, where she earned multiple awards, including the Walter Cronkite Award for Excellence in Media, a Peabody for CNN's coverage of the Arab Spring, and back-to-back Emmy Awards for Presidential Election Nights at two different networks. We're excited to interview her today, and thank you for joining us. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Just to get us started, you're a double Hoya, so you've been at Georgetown as a student undergrad and in the graduate school. Can you tell us about what inspired you to pursue journalism? Um, that's such a great question. I think um, it, it, like most things, I was always a questioner and I loved meeting people and finding out what made them tick. Um, and I also, so there was two things that was true. And two, I had a burning desire of justice. Like I read Diary of Anne Frank when I was 10 and um, I'm Catholic, but I, I so connected to her and was so mad at America for letting it happen. I just, I cried for days and my parents were really worried about me because it was this happy girl that just went into this spiral. And it would happen often with literature, like To Kill a Mockingbird, these things that are moving, moved me to, 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 to just week long, just, I would yell at people <laughs> over them because I just had this sense and this moral compass that was so burned in on me that I think I was always interested in law and justice and the ramifications of it. And then one day, my hero, who was Magic Johnson, who played for the LA Lakers, I grew up in Los Angeles, he um, was like me in one aspect in that he was always smiling. And his smile was so big and his personality was so joyous that it kind of masked what he was good at, which was, he was incredible (laughs) at basketball. And I didn't share his athleticism, but I was a huge sports fan and I loved that. And um, I loved going to the games or watching the games with my dad and sports was kind of the thing I bonded with my dad about. And it's kind of the culture of Los Angeles and the way politics is the culture of the East Coast. And when Magic Johnson, this one day, I remember it was, I was in elementary school, but he had a press conference to announce that he had the AIDS virus. And at that time, no one knew what the AIDS virus was. And I was sitting there and my mom came home and I was sitting there at the table with a bagel after school, watching this press conference, just crying that my hero had this really scary disease that I could tell was serious. And yet he had this press conference and no one asked him the question I wanted to know, which was, are you going to die? You know, what's, what does this mean? Like, you know, and people were dancing around it and people were so shocked that they were asking all of these 
questions for the room and not questions for the fan. And I was yelling at the TV, which is funny because that's literally what you do as a producer. And I didn't know what a producer was. I didn't know what any of those things were, but I just knew I wanted to be in that room and ask the questions for the people who cared, not the people who stopped caring or didn't want to show that they cared. And that was kind of my epiphany. Um, and what's really funny is later <laughs> in life, when CNN was recruiting me to come work at CNN, John King asked me that story, when, do you, when did you want to be a journalist? And I said, oh, I said, I know exactly this moment. And I said, I was watching Magic Johnson and I, and I tell him this story just like I told you. And he, he leans back in his chair and he just smiles and he says, this is so crazy, but I'm going to interview Magic Johnson this Sunday because I'm going to the Turner Sports has this all-star game and um, do you want to come with me? <laughs> and I, at that time, was on maternity leave. I didn't work for CNN. I wasn't interested in this job. They were recruiting for me. And I just said yes. And I ran out of the restaurant and called my husband. I was like, wait, we have a problem. I think I have a new job and I am really excited <laughs> about it. And that was so, it, it, you never lose sight of those moments because I think if you can listen to yourself and harness that passion, um, and keep to it, then it's really a great career because I never feel like I've worked a day in my life. Yeah, and I mean, one thing that struck me in your response to Haley's question is you mentioned a burning desire for justice and um, wanting to ask tough questions as a journalist. And I'm curious, um, bringing this to the present day, how do you cover an election? Or how do you manage to cover an election when there are seemingly more pressing issues like the COVID-19 crisis and nationwide unrest um, that have captivated national attention? Um, I think that there, it's really important to bring those, anything that captivates national attention um, into why politics and elections matter. And politics is the fight over scarce resources, right? And so the word doesn't mean anything to a lot of people, but if all of a sudden you say this, you know, the, the easiest way to have systemic change is to, is to vote. <laughs> and the easiest way to say that I want this institution to change is to vote for different people in that institution. I always like to get really specific. I love covering, I always say to anybody I hire, I cover, I cover people, I don't cover buildings. And um, so people all the time would say, oh, the media is bad, the church is bad, the police is bad. And you're like, no, tell me names, get specific, right? Because those, there is no institution or building who did harm, it's people in those that abuse their power or trust, right? And so I think that there's a huge instance there. I think the first thing at a moment like this, though, is to listen. And it's the number one skill in storytelling, it's the number one skill in journalism, and it's the number one skill in management. And so I think that what propelled me into journalism, um, where I kind of, I think that if you can figure out what it is that you're really good at, it's helpful. And I think that one of the things that I realized really young, my high school ran out of money and closed and people really talked down to the stay-at-home moms who were really active in the PTA and were very concerned. And I sat with them and I translated what was happening to them. And they were like, wait, oh my God, will you come with us to Sacramento because you can explain it better than we can. 
And I said, I, I don't know, like, how can I, I, I go to school? I don't want to miss school, <laughs> you know? And they called my mom and they called the principal and said, can we take her to Sacramento to explain this? And that was one of the biggest, rarest moments in my life. One, because people older than me recognized something in me to say, you can explain things in a non-scary way. Um, and then I thought, huh, that's really interesting. And so I think that that truly became my career is to say at moments like this, where there is so much fear to speak out and to say, hey, I don't understand that. Even at the, those board meetings that we were alluding to, oftentimes what happens is the students leave the room and then somebody kind of pulls me aside because I'm the joyful one that smiles a lot. So I'm less intimidating and say, hey, what do they mean by, you know, white privilege? What does that term mean? Right. And that I feel like is, is really important at moments of change or protest or injustice is to listen and see those opportunities to say, okay, time out, let's define the changing language and really press on this and help you feel comfortable getting into this conversation. And I think that what's fascinating about your generation, you two specifically, entering this world at a time where, there's, where free speech is really under assault and actually not even just on the media landscape is that people are actually afraid to speak. And the last time I saw this happen really big was, was in the Trump election where people were afraid to say they were voting for him. And I, I figured it out really early by traveling a lot and listening. And so that's one of the things that I'm really proud of is that, hey, I didn't miss that. I also didn't miss the rap war. A lot of those stories, a lot of people in the media missed. If you, if you can put your finger on moments that peep a passion that aren't necessarily election, but they really are. <laughs> if you can, and, and listen to where the, the people that might not have the same vocabulary, where their pain points are. And then sit them down and say, listen, I just want to understand. Can, can we do this? And I want you to tell your story in a way. And I will sit here on the floor with you. And they will say, I don't want to be on camera. And I said, I know that one of the reasons you don't want to be on camera is you've never seen someone like you on camera. And how would that ever change unless you did it? So I'm going to sit on the floor with you. And I'm going to tell you, I am not on camera. Never want to be. I'm a producer. I would hate being on camera. And then they laugh because they're like, oh my gosh, right? You actually realize it's hard to do that. And I said, yes, I do. And I said, you know what? Let's try it once without it rolling. Let's try it again. And then we go. And what's amazing is if you can get that person comfortable enough to actually speak from the heart and realize you're not judging them, that you're just actively listening. Um, it's one of the most respectful acts you could do as a human, as a journalist, as a manager, as a friend, as a fellow citizen. And I hope you guys do it a lot at Georgetown because it's incredibly rare to have a, a student body as diverse as Georgetown does in so many different ways. And I mean, not just politically, but you know, you have so many first generation college students there. And to have that at a university of elite status is so amazing at this moment. I, I honestly feel like it, you, you really are at a seat that is the best poise to, to implement change and listen to where, where the pain points are. That was a, a great answer to the question and so much more than just an answer. And I know earlier when we were talking, you said that um, so much of progress is language and that really struck me as a, a great way to understand this. And something else that has to do with progress that you've worked on is social media uh, and the jump from kind of social media and the ways to combine all that. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what you think the role of social media is um, kind of for social movements and elections 
and then uh, we can get a little bit more into what platforms should be doing. Um, that's a great question. I, I actually wrote my master's thesis on the fourth branch of government being social media, which at the time was just a new term, <laughs> not to age myself, but it was called interactive media and how I had a thesis that it would actually, there, there's a, there's, there's a whole line of academics that said the media is the fourth branch of government. And in my view, Matt, I, I wrote one paper that kind of got me in trouble, but I was making the point that Matt Drudge was like a warning to the mainstream media, just like in the um, Reformation, uh, the Protestants, you know, put uh, nailed onto the church a warning saying you're so far away from the people that you're in trouble. And I said, Matt Drudge's success was a warning to mainstream media. If you don't come off of these high horse and listen, you're going to be in problem. And, and that was what gave me, and this is pre Madrudge posting the Lewinsky story. So it was very early on in this, uh, in, in the internet. And the, my, my thesis was that interactive media would come and be a check and balance on the mainstream media. And I see you're playing that out today in very uncomfortable and comfortable ways. And I think that's really interesting. I think that on the plus side, of social media is that it is a story that's not told often that people always decry the lack of local news, which, which deserves to be decried. But I think that on the flip side is how informed young people are at a level that has never been reached before because you have Snapchat and all of these different things that are in local spaces and crevices and people's habits with their friends where trust is formed. And so I love TikTok and Snapchat and these, 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 um, orifices that actually have a tone of joy, because I think one of the problems that that happened in media with the first generation of social media is that it was almost magnifying perma crisis. And there's a lot of talk of this of 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 how we often always magnify the, especially with cable and Twitter combining and informing this conversation around conflict, and that is really good and an interesting way to debate. But what that is hard for is the person who's too busy to pay attention all the time and you're just coming home from your second job or you're just there watching with your family and you tune in and ah, would you walk into that room? If you're walking down the hall after a hard day work, would you walk into the room with people screaming at each other at something you don't really understand? No, right? And so I, I think there's always a humongous opportunity in different, what I, I call growing up, different sections of the paper. And now there are no sections of the paper, so we have to recreate them. And I think recreating that community that community newspapers used to have, whether it be the sports section and you all having a common dialogue there with me and my dad talking about magic, right? Or the kids post where parents could actually talk about language with their kids and the paper or helped them do it in a way and gave them the language to do that and raise kids that were really good in civically minded, right? Absolutely. Um, I'm curious just because you talked about the local sports news section and being a communal place to talk and gather. But one of the criticisms of social media is that people silo themselves and that someone, I mean, you work at the Washington Post, but someone who's on the same social media platform of Twitter or Facebook or TikTok might not even come across a Washington Post article that's not filtered through the lens of another site commenting on that. So I'm just curious, how do you break through that, I guess, partisan divide or information divide? Because a lot of people are decrying the fact that 
we don't have a common set of facts with which we even debate on in our country. I think it's a huge problem. And I think that um, I, I tend, I think that also a really big problem uh, at, that I've just witnessed in so many mediums now that spring up like, you know, Snapchat and all of these things that were youth platforms, what happens is they, as they get big, they almost all get overtaken by celebrities. And that is so, that, that to me is like, ah, oh, why are the same five celebrities the most popular people on all the social platforms, like, right? And that, that scares me a lot, is that, um, but it also, you know, it works both ways. When Shakira made a video in Europe on tour, on stop, right, right at the start of the coronavirus, and, you know, shared a Washington Post article on flattening the curve, we, it, it, it was one of the biggest moments ever, you know? And I love getting getting that attention of new groups of people. And, um, you know, I still remember when Lady Gaga tweeted when I was in the control room, I'm just about to watch the CNN debate that I was producing. And it was like, the, it was so fun to watch that. So I, 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 it's, it's a problem and a curse. I think that one of the things that I really love about Georgetown and I love about human nature is, is if we can make it part of being a good citizen to challenge yourself and challenge your assumptions. I think that's a great thing. And I think that the, the second thing, and that's where journalism really comes in to help you do that. Um, I, I think that debates are a great way to remind people to open that filter. Um, and I think that what we're doing now, um, and it's, it, there's a lot of visual investigations now that are recreating things. And the Washington Post just published two that I thought were incredibly well. One of them, like past 6 million views on YouTube, just recreating what video told about George Floyd's death. And what I loved about that piece is that it got every camera that it could. Like it was, it spent a lot of time trying to get cell phone cameras, car cameras, the, you know, subpoenaing this camera, trying to, you know, putting a FOA, you know, a FOIA request in for this one and trying to tell it from as many different viewpoints as possible. And I think the more we do that and show the lengths that we're going to, to get people a bigger, wider aperture on the story, um, the more people will do that on their own. And, and I, I know that's hopeful, but I am hopeful. <laughs> and especially I know the audience I'm talking to, right? If there's an audience that can put that in action, it's you guys, right? And so I want, I want that to be um, a thing that we do more of is, is actively seeking out, listening to people who disagree with you. And, and my favorite moments at Georgetown were moments like that. Absolutely. Um and I, I'm also personally hopeful about the potential for social media, but I also um, recognize the potential for disinformation and misinformation, which many others do as well, to spread on these platforms. And I'm curious because you mentioned um, interactive media or social media as being a fourth branch of government, or at least in your master's thesis. Um, but these, many of these are private platforms and they're not necessarily subject to First Amendment um, protection. So I'm just curious, especially because you work so much with TikTok and even with Twitter recently fact-checking the president, um, whether, like, whether you think platforms should be doing this or how as a news organization devoted to the First Amendment um, and to reaching people, how do you deal with that? I think it's such an interesting time. And I, I think that I urge every Georgetown student to go listen in full to Mark Zuckerberg's speech at Georgetown and, and, it, and, and truly listen to it with patience because I think that there were a couple of 
early mistakes in that speech that made everybody focus on that, what I call catnip, as opposed to the point of the piece. And I think it was really interesting and really difficult. Um, I do know two things. One is journalists are special and true journalists are public servants in my mind. And I think when you walk into the Washington Post, you walk past the principles of the Post that were written in, in you know, the 1930s, I think, and it's, they're on the Washington Post website, but they're written by Catherine Graham's father, who owned the paper, who said, you know, the first interest, the, uh, the first goal of the paper and mission of the paper is to tell the truth as, as nearly as the truth can be, you know, ascertained. And the second one is that to remember that you answer to the people and not to any individual owner, right? And this is years ago. And what I love about that freedom and that reminder is that there is, in, in the generation of journalism that I came into, there definitely were missionaries, right? We, and I don't think that people show that enough that we're on the side of speaking up for injustice and for listening to people and also telling stories for people who don't have the voice to tell stories. And I think that is something that I feel a calling for and I think is separate and than what corporate interests are. And I still remember when everybody was decrying the, the, the lack of, of news and they said, well, you know, Netflix is coming, they're gonna do a lot of news you know, programming. And, and, you know, of course, what their answer of news programming was, you know, signing a deal with a former president, you know, to do documentaries. And then they did a comedy show where it was, it was not, it was banned in Saudi Arabia. And they asked Reed Hastings about it. And Reed Hastings said, well, we're not in the truth to power business. And I printed that quote and put it on my cubicle at work <laughs> as a reminder of all of these things that people are chasing you know i want this i want to pitch this show for netflix i want to you know and you think we have to actually say there are values that a news organization that is independent has that we want and think that your subscription money is worth and we think it is more important to subscribe to something that is going to tell you the truth and speak truth to power and to speak truth for the powerless. And that is worth $29 a year for a digital subscription, right? And people are not yet translating that that might go away. And really, it might go away and is going away daily. And so that is the burning fear of my life, which is why I left the entrepreneurial world, which I was having fun because I really do think that um, that there's a lane for a different type of news, but I thought, God, maybe it'll be faster if I can do it within established organization and magnify the values and help them be aggressive about showing their values. Absolutely. And, and you just mentioned also a lane for uh, new types of news. And as of this recording in June 2020, we're still under guidance to do social distancing, which has definitely changed the way that news is covered and the way that it's distributed. Uh, do you think these changes will last? And what has been the most notable difference to you? I think it's such a great question. And I, um, I'm so curious how the conventions play out. And I'm sad because I Every, every four years, they always say, oh, Michelle, you're such a Pollyanna. You love these things. These are not, they're always news. They always introduce new players on the scene. And so don't let any person tell you that they're not. They're fascinating. And I learned so much. And I think one of the joys of being an independent journalist is going to both conventions, usually in the you know months apart, because you get to see how different America organizes and how different the, the um 
every part of the the process is and it's so eye-opening and educational and and um to see the people that are motivated and what motivates them and um and and to really learn and listen to the language and how it's changing and what what um what is the movement and what is getting struck out of speeches and what it, what's in a speech that they don't read like I'm, I'm that much of a nerd about how interesting it is you know um and i think that that is what i'll miss the most is being able to just go into a big group and kind of blend in and watch um and and that that i think is sad on the good note i think that what's happened right right now i think we're doing a it's really good for digital journalism and digital video because there's really not much of a difference between um how you're shooting a tv show and a digital show right now and so that revolution which i hope will help bring new voices and fresher approaches to news um will happen and is happening like you even look like we do some live broadcasts and more and more people are watching it on a television screen, which is amazing because I still remember when desktop went to mobile and now we're going from mobile to big screen, <laughs> which, is, which is really cool in how we can bring so scrappier outlets that require less infrastructure. And I have a control room in my house and did a, you know, producing live broadcasts from my home. That is really cool. I mean, that, that just, that that it, it feels like a watershed moment just like the iphone was a watershed moment when we had you know a cnn camera crew not allowed into libya and one of our reporters had an iphone in his pocket and they didn't confiscate it and so we did a whole you know really groundbreaking report that he edited and shot on his phone and that was like a moment where you're like man this is just changing what we can do and i feel like we're at another moment um and so that is on the production side and as far as the social distancing side, I, I hope that the online school and all of this onlineness is helping people forget that filter so that they do open up to journalists remotely, which is tricky because it is hard to open up to anyone that you don't know very well regardless, but to do it again in a, in a setting, I, I, I kind of hope that we were before the campaign, we have relaxed social distancing rules because I miss that. And I think certainly the protests are allowing us to get close to people in, in risky situations, but I think at least there are people there willing to talk and signaling themselves out as willing to talk. Absolutely. Um, I think it's, I'm curious just as well, um, because you mentioned how we went from the small screen, a uh, big screen to the small screen, and then going back from smaller screens to bigger screens. And now, and the fact that you work, um, you brought the Washington Post to TikTok, and you've been at the forefront of bringing platforms to uh, big media organizations to social media platforms. And I'm curious, what do you think the next digital frontier is for both campaigning and for journalism? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I want to give credit to Dave Jorgensen, who works for me and, and pitched me on TikTok. And I was like, wait, is that musically? Like, what is this, like a year ago? And he was just such a big believer in it. And I think that um, one of the most fun things in life is listening to the young people. And so I, I definitely think that he, he deserves the credit for getting the post on TikTok, not me. Uh, but I definitely was a champion of his passion and and elbowed people out of the way to make sure that he had his lane. Uh, and I think that one, as far as what's next, um, I don't know yet. I think it's evolving so much. I think what's, I guess I'll answer a couple of things. I do think that there will be a retreat to some smaller forms of social 
you know, as, as people are now leaving a digital past that is kind of scaring them, I think we'll see a revert back to some ones that, that are more privacy enabled, um, which is one of Snapchat's long-term goals, which is interesting if they can reassert themselves in that role. Um, Evan Spiegel said it in a really interesting speech that was covered on the West Coast more than the East Coast, but he basically said that not all social activity is meant to be large. And, and I think that actually the current moment that we're in lends itself to small group discussions. And that's where I do kind of think, oh, this would be interesting to see what happens here. I think the other thing I'm watching is the protest art on Instagram. Um, and that has really been fun to see. And I think we're working on a piece about that and fact checking some of the memes of Instagram, which I think will be really fun is to jump into art with a, okay, we see you, we see what you're doing, but we want to make sure that people know that this isn't true, but this is true, you know, and seeing if that can work in some ways. Um, I think also you'll see, I, I do really think that TikTok for all of its hype right now is going to get bigger. I think they're going to go more into live programming. And so I think that um, that is still one to not keep your eye off of. So let's talk about the election a little bit. Um, some things are great in small groups, but rallies, canvassing and conventions, all of these things are put on hold. Um, what do you think that presidential debates are gonna look like and what, what is the um, shape of the election cycle going to be? Such a great question. Um, I think the debates can actually happen with social distancing. And so I don't think the, and it might actually remove one of the pieces that is always a, a challenge, which is the the whether they they don't do a town hall or they do a town hall distance wise, um, which is, you know, depending on which side you're on, it, it it removes some of the interaction with humans, which is so fun to watch to see how they do. You know, because I love that stuff. I love seeing who you know walks closer to the audience or not. So I hope that we still have that in some form. Um, I do think that you're starting to see some relaxing of of uh, of social distancing in enough places where you'll have some interaction what what i am afraid of is when you just have protests or when you just have rallies you're missing the the maybe voter the one huh, i'm just kind of curious because you're just adding another layer to the risk assessment of going out to something that to them might be risky or foreign um, and so I actually think that this is one where you're going to see those alternate approaches to politics, just like you saw Anthony Fauci go on with Steph Curry to reach people with the coronavirus. I think you're going to see a lot of interesting uh, approaches to reach voters that might still be socially distancing, but are still are very available for screen time. <laughs> so I, I, um, I'm, I'm really intrigued that way. Yeah, and I'm just curious, having you sent the team to Iowa for the caucus, even though that feels like seven years ago, <laughs> but what has um, thus far been the most interesting aspect of covering this 2020 election cycle? Um, my favorite thing about every election cycle is how it throws away old norms. And, and I love that. I love it because it's lazy journalism to be like, oh, the person with the most money wins. The person you'd rather have a beer with wins. Like they, they say these things like there's a reason to stop listening. Or there was this huge reliance on data analytics. And I didn't understand how much money and how much time was spent trying to tell people who was going to win before election day. 
and it would just irritate me. And I didn't understand how that was the new cool thing in journalism. When I said, our job is to listen and how offensive to tell voters, hey, we got the answer, don't even bother, right? Like, that's like actively telling people you're stopped listening. And so I love, uh, you know, Stephen Ginsburg, the national editor at The Post, said, embrace not knowing. And I, I, I just smiled so much because he's an understanding personality because that's such a big statement that was so amazing. Um, and I love that. And I, I always I always say, I, I'm, I, I always think of Tim Russert on election day and he, he would just wake up with this Cheshire cat grin. And I always would think he would get more people to the polls with his excitement of not knowing what was gonna happen. And I, I feel that way every election. Um, and I think that all of this, questions and all of this uncertainty actually makes the game more fun. And so I'm really optimistic that all of all of the downside of, of, of making this so strange and that we can't convene in groups makes this so obviously new that it's going to silence the projections. And even if there are projections and even if there are polls and even if the people are not going to know and that is awesome because I think that's one of the best things that can happen is a little bit of humility going into an election cycle and saying, I don't care, Mr. Pundit or Miss Pundit, who's on television a million times and paid for it. You actually have the same vote number as somebody who's just, you know, watching in their dorm room. And I think that's so awesome. And I think that's, that's the way it should be. So we have one final question for you just to wrap up. You've mentioned a lot about being a journalist and what you love, but what is your favorite part of your job and why do you continue in the profession? Oh, I love, um, I love learning and I am constantly learning. And I think that it is so amazing that I'm paid to learn. And I think that it's one of the same reasons I love being a mom is that you're just constantly learning and humbled that you have to come up with a new answer every single day. And it's always different and it's always amazing and it's always rewarding. And there's, there is just, it's, it really is an amazing puzzle unfolding before your eyes. It's so important. And I feel the same way about journalism. And I think that um, I, I truly have never worked for a paycheck in my life. And that is awesome. And I've never, there's been, there's been days I've left kind of like, oh, that got me down, especially lately, because there's so much news that's hard. But I have never woke up and been like, God, I got to go to work. I never. I, I've always, one, and especially now, I, I'm, I've, and this is one of the fun things about working really, really hard for a really long time, <laughs> is that I get to really choose who I work with. And that's so awesome, is that I work with people that I, I really um, am excited to go see every day and, and excited for people to see them and for me to point out things in them that I just love and value. And I honestly feel that way about the, the Washington Post, not just my team. And that's really fun and motivating. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us on the podcast. We really appreciate you coming on. I love what you're doing. I'm such a, such a fan. Thanks again for tuning in to the first episode of our summer season. Make sure to come back next week for another behind the scenes look at the 2020 election. And as always, make sure to stay in touch with us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can always send us an email at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>